Listener Production. Do you feel like you're part of Generation F'd? Struggling to get full-time work? The dream of owning your own home, sliding further into the future? Spending lots of your time worrying about how you're going to pay for things? Wishing you had rich parents? Well, today's guest is speaking your language. Economist Alison Pennington reckons Gen Y is Generation F'd. We've got young people who are far more likely to be in lower paid, insecure work, jobs that make it hard to build a life out of. And that's a big deal because that's the first rung on the opportunity ladder for Australia. Yeah, so the career ladder is hard to climb, let alone the property ladder. It's a really interesting conversation that I think lots of people will relate to and explains why so many people feel like they can't afford the future they want. Generation F, that is our briefing in today's episode. First, the big news stories of the day. It's Thursday, the 9th of March. I'm joined by Jan Fran. G'day, Tom. The rape allegation against Bruce Learman uh, could be tested in court again. So this time it's in a defamation trial that he instigated against the network 10 and News Corp. Um, So last night, those two media companies filed their defences, revealing that along with journalist Lisa Wilkinson, they're going to be arguing the truth defence. So what that means is that they could have to prove that the allegations that they reported from Brittany Higgins are substantially true. Yeah, and the interesting difference between this case and the criminal trial, which was aborted last year, is that there's a different burden of proof. In the criminal court, you have to prove the allegations beyond a reasonable doubt. In the civil court, it's on the balance of probabilities. The other difference is that Learman might have to take the stand this time around, Mm -hmm. which will be very interesting. Um, He's always vehemently denied the allegations. Yeah, first thing is first, though, his team will have to convince the court that he can pursue this legal action, um, given that it is happening after the standard one-year limitation period. And in America, Rupert Murdoch has admitted Fox News hosts Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram may have gone too far in their coverage of Trump's voter fraud claims after the 2020 US election. So the latest comments were revealed in court documents as part of a trove of new evidence in the Dominion Voting System's defamation lawsuit against Fox, which was unsealed overnight. So Dominion is arguing Fox broadcast false and malicious rumours about voter fraud that harmed its business because they ran the voting system. They also argue that the internal communications and depositions by Fox personnel proved the network knowingly spread lies about Trump's loss to bolster its ratings. So a five-week trial is going to kick off in mid-April. Yeah, there was around 6,500 pages that have been released. Um, a lot of the evidence, though, has been redacted, but it just shows some of the internal workings at Fox News, all the way from Rupert Murdoch right down to mm. show producers about how they're going to cover this story, what they're going to say. Uh, and in private text messages, it's been revealed that some host, Tucker Carlson, for example, talking disparagingly about Trump while seeming to support him on air. So there's a lot of those discrepancies that are going to be aired to the public in this case. Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe, who's made a lot of news lately, is making some more news. She's been cleared of contempt of Parliament over an undisclosed relationship with a former bikey. I think I deserve an apology from the leader of the Greens for one because I lost my position as well. For what? So this goes back to a situation last year where 
Uh, Lydia Thorpe resigned from her role as Greens Deputy Leader in the Senate over the revelation that she'd briefly dated ex-Rebels President Dean Martin. Now she's come out saying she only kissed him once at a rally but was told by Greens lawyers to say she dated him. So I think at the time a lot of people assumed it was more than one kiss at a rally, which is a weird place for a kiss. Um, I think a lot of people assumed it was more sexual and more ongoing than that. Well, I mean, look, I who, who are we? You did? Okay. Yeah. Who are we to say what people can do or not do at rallies? If you want to kiss someone at a rally, that's I'm your problem. I'm not saying you can't kiss someone at a rally. I'm just saying that's not dating someone. That's that's one kiss. Well, look. A dating, in, to me, implies in that context that they were having sex over a period of time. Okay. Well, Thorpe did send a letter to the Privileges Committee. This was last year where she said that she met this guy through black activism and that they briefly dated uh, during the month of March, right? So that's sort of what we know. Now she's saying it was just a kiss. Adam Bant saying that he was relying on that testimony from her from last year. Little bit of discrepancy as to what's going on. (laughs) Not sure I can clarify it too much. What I can say, though, is that the Privileges Committee, first of all, found that she didn't disclose any sensitive information to Mr. Mm. Martin. Which right? is the main thing. Which is the main thing. Um, however, it also did find that she should have declared the relationship up front to avoid any perceived conflict of interest. And, you know, this is this is, this is going to cause a, an added headache for the Greens because they're already in a bit of a tumultuous relationship at the moment with Lydia Thorpe because, as we know, um, she quit the party some weeks ago over her stance on the voice to parliament, which differs from the party. Yeah, well, she sort of briefly dated the Greens and now that relationship's definitely over. (laughs) Please do not continue with this analogy and tell me that she only kissed the Greens at a rally. We're moving on. (laughs) Heading overseas with the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, who has touched down in India, um, where he's joined in in Diwali festivities and also launched a Deakin University campus in the country. Um, He is visiting for four days course, no surprises here, is going to discuss trade, defence, technology, all of this with the Indian PM Narendra Modi. So India, just a little bit of BG here, bit of background, our sixth largest trading partner. Mm. And no doubt Anthony Albanese believing that trade relationship could be much stronger. That's what he's out there doing. For sure. Um, next, he's going to jet over to America where he'll meet with President Joe Biden and the British PM Rishi Sunak, um, where they'll be making a big AUKUS defence announcement. So that will be one to watch. And the Reserve Bank. Every time I start headlines with the Reserve Bank. You get a bit depressed. I get a bit deflated. Uh, Not super deflating, though, this headline, because the bank's hinted that um, it could pause the button on rate hikes next month. With monetary policy now in restrictive territory, we are closer to the point where it will be appropriate to pause interest rate increases to allow more time to assist the state of the economy. That was the RBA Governor, Philip Lowe, there. This comes after Tuesday's 10th straight Mm. rate rise. Cash rate currently sitting at 3.6%. Yep. So the data he's waiting to see um, will be coming in over the next few weeks. There'll be um, jobs figures in a week. Then there'll be retail trade figures to see how much we're spending in the shops. Uh, And then the monthly inflation figure will come in at the end of the month. So if you really want to follow the detail on this one, you can see that data as it comes before the first Tuesday of the month in April when they'll make the next rates decision. Alternatively, you can just not follow the story at all and just cross your fingers and hope to God those rates don't rise if you have them all. Also, don't look at your bank statement. Yeah. 
That too. All right, Jam, we'll catch you tomorrow on the podcast in just a moment. Katrina joins me for this really interesting interview about Generation F. Work hard and you'll get ahead. I think that's some advice we've probably all heard in our time from our parents, maybe our grandparents, also the government. And I guess, Tom, for previous generations, it was right. Yeah, it was. Wealth has only increased and the standard of living has only gone up until now. Um, Things are changing for our generation. So, look, you do have to work hard to get ahead, but you can also work hard and not necessarily get ahead in today's economy. Decades of dwindling government housing, tax concessions favouring investors and house price growth that has outpaced wages. So all of that means young people are locked out of home ownership by rich, older Australians. Yeah, then at the same time, it's been really tough on the work front for younger people. Despite being the most educated generation in history, Gen Ys are struggling to get secure full-time work which is why Alison Pennington, an economist, describes Gen Y as Generation f And that is the title of her book. <laughs> Alison, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you've painted quite a grim picture for our generation. Can you explain why we're Gen f So in the book, what I piece together is all the threads of the loss of economic opportunity that young Australians have faced, focusing on jobs and housing. But if you look at the combination of what's happening, we've got young people who are far more likely to be in lower paid, insecure work, jobs that make it hard to build a life out of. And that's a big deal because that's the first rung on the opportunity ladder for Australia, which is a a nation that really defines itself based on its access to a good job. And then if you connect what happens to the, the decline of decent jobs, that means your incomes are lower. And what we found in the in the 10 years after the GFC, young people's incomes declined. We saw people going backwards. Um, and then what that means, if you can't get a decent income, then you can't access the housing market. And young people have really, born from the 1980s onwards is how I define young. They have moved into a harsher climate for anyone is more of an each for their own individualistic kind of environment and essentially a housing market that's been pumped up for for the gains of those who already own houses uh, and has just made it basically a pipe dream um, for young Australians to envisage being able to buy a home of their own and without those two major pillars of a decent job and a roof over your head what I'm saying is that the fair go as we know it in Australia has has crumbled What's happened in particular to the landscape of work for this generation? Who, who are the most educated generation in Australian history? Why, why is it so insecure? So around the 1980s, there were some really big changes happening in our economy and the effect of essentially businesses becoming more and more focused on how they could compete with each other over their labour costs, so the cost of their wages. It means that jobs became something that we competed against each other for. Um, and that's a lot to do with government, you know, reneging on its on its job to provide good employment, right? Stopped public sector jobs started to decline, and then businesses got more and more power over how they defined the job offerings. And so, once wages and and labour costs got into the firing line, essentially Australian workplaces became 
this really much rougher individualistic environment. We lost collective powerful institutions like unions, which helped to create a more of a level playing field for workers. What that effect has been is we've seen an explosion in insecure work, good, good quality jobs with you know basic entitlements like sick leave and, and annual leave. Really, the gains of the 20th century union movement became out of reach for a lot of young people. They're more likely to be in environments where they're exploited and don't have protections against things like wage theft. So you're looking at the macro factors there of why we are generation f mostly um, around jobs and housing. But what on the micro level, the day-to-day life, is that actually like for people not to have as secure work, not to have some of the benefits that come with a permanent job and also facing many more years to save a deposit for a house? What does that feel like? I think for a lot of young people who... they've kind of stepped back from the world of work. It's seen as like this, it's unsexy to want a a decent job and to have meaningful work. And I think that's part of this wrong kind of anti-system thinking, really. Like we, we need to all produce goods and services to, you know, consume the things that we want, to have the lives we want. We all have to work to do it, including, you know, basic public services. And so what's happened is by stepping away from engaging with and demanding a a good quality job, it's created this enormous amount of anxiety and confusion. And the way I describe the experience of insecure work, which so many young people face, is it's systematised anxiety. When you don't know if you're going to have income next week, a shift next week, you're waiting on for a text message from a boss to know if you've got work, you carry that essentially a survivalist concern. Will, will you be able to pay your rent? Will you keep a roof, roof over your head? Like these are the basics. It gets, it gets to the very basics of human survival. I think too, when the messages from the system don't match young people's reality, so those messages still are like from older generations and from governments, you know, just keep working harder and you'll get ahead. Just save more, you know, <laughs> and that's just not the reality for a lot of young people, including um, you talk quite extensively in your book about the tax system and that has really favoured older Australians. Just describe that for us. We're in this unique position now where the revenue base of Australia is because of so many like corporate tax cuts over time, uh, because of the way we've shaped tax concessions, particularly housing tax concessions. If you earn a dollar earning on the job, it is over 10 times more likely to be taxed than a dollar from not lifting a finger through capital gains. Yeah, so what you're talking about there is the capital gains tax discount that if you own an asset, say shares or a property for more than a year, it only gets taxed at half uh, your income tax rate. So that means that lots of workers who are not rich get taxed at a higher rate than someone who's rich gets taxed on the money that just sits in the bank or the equity that just sits in a property. It is Mm. a really stark inequality. Oh, big time. And I think what we're seeing now is there's a, a very strong generational aspect to this. But it is predominantly about income. Like I think that there's a very strong effort right now to airbrush out the rich factor. And we saw that with the superannuation debate. There was a really strong, when when the, the government had said that we were going to reduce concessions for people over $3 million, there was a very strong effort to say that this is an attack on retirements. Um, this is 
a disincentive for young workers now who might be multimillionaires when they're older. But like really what we're what we're getting at here is the tax system is favouring the ultra rich because of the time they were born in, they happen to be older. It's not sustainable. Okay, so it's all sounding pretty grim. Um, mm. Where's the hope? And could perversely rising interest rates be part of the solution because they allow you better gains on your savings, say a deposit for a house, and they're also smashing asset prices? I think we are at the cliff edge of, of our egalitarian claims in Australia, but it doesn't mean that we have to stay here. We can actually, because there's a high number of crises in the in key pillars of life, in, like I said, jobs and housing, um, but I'd say also social relations, like we are an increasingly atomized and isolated people, that there is a real moment here and the inflation crisis does really hasten that requirement that we all start to ask ourselves how we can work together to build something better. And the old fair go, which was very much based on work, I think we have at a point now where the labour market looks very different, um, in particular women's entry into the job market uh, has changed the old, you know, blue-collar, you know, masculine form of, of the fair go. But we can build something much better um, out of this that, that recognises that government's role is to support the living standards and the substance of life for all people. And we are incredibly wealthy. We can do it. We've got very large, powerful corporations who can set the prices for the essentials. But also it's a it's a moment for government to invest in people. If you want to deal with an inflation crisis, you have to look at how to deal with the production problem but also look at our supply chains. How do we build up our domestic supply chains? How do we buffer ourselves against very wild international forces? Who knows what, what holds for our world in the next you know, 10 years? The best thing we can do is be investing in people now and investing in their health and their education and their, their skills and their sustainability and support them so that we can you know, support all our everyone um, for, for years to come. And that's everything to do with young people, right? They are on the front lines of all of this, but they're going to be the future workforce of 20 years' time. We need to be thinking long-term again. That was economist Alison Pennington, who's also the author of the new book, Gen Eft. i got to say, Tom, I know, you know, it does paint a grim picture. Mm. It is a little bit doom and gloom, but I also think it will be a huge relief for a lot of young people to hear an economist voicing mm. their reality. I, I think for a lot of young people, they they talk about this with their mum and dad. They go to their mum and dad for the, for the bank of mum and dad and they get shouted down or their reality gets denied and they're told, well, it was tough for us as well and mm. you've just got to suck it up. But it's not the same as it used to be. Well, there is one thing maybe we can control, which is our expectations. And this is part of the problem. So um, the generations before had an increasing standard of living and we no longer do in an economic sense. But we still have their expectations of what a good life is. And so, you know, we have high expectations about traveling overseas and the parts of our cities that mm. we want to live in. And I think we do have to wind them back. Otherwise, we're going to be a little bit disappointed. You know, many people in the generations before had to move out to the outer suburbs. That's why they exist. And, you know, some of us couldn't even consider doing that. So 
Expectations are a really tricky one as well that I think we need to keep in mind. Although I do wonder, Katrina, am I starting to sound like a bit of a baby boomer there? (laughs) I don't know that there's too many young people who are going to be red hot for moving out to the burbs, but, you know, maybe that's what we got to do. Wind back your expectations. Listener.